Let's cultivate our motivation and recall how fortunate we are to have access to the Buddha's teachings. So many people in this world don't. And how fortunate we are to have the religious freedom to be able to make use of this access. Because again, so many people lack that freedom. Many people have access and many people have freedom to engage in the teachings, but they don't have the interest in the Dharma. They would much rather be doing something else. So from our side, it's quite amazing that we were born with this interest in the Dharma. with this sincere wish to understand the world, understand ourselves, make our lives meaningful. So this is a situation to appreciate and also to make good use of. It won't last forever, and when we arrive at the time when our mind is separating from the body, we can't all of a sudden say, uh, hey, wait a minute, I'm not ready to die. I want to go back and do that Dharma practice that I didn't get a chance to do before. So it's important to practice now while we're alive so we don't know when this life will end. So the best way to make use of this life is by practicing the bodhicitta. So let's generate that aspiration for full enlightenment for the benefit of sentient beings. And the aspiration to become monastics, again, for the benefit of sentient beings. So I thought today to talk a little bit about the development of some of the earliest uh, Buddhist literature, we've talked about the development of the Pratimoksha, the Vinaya, of course the sutras the Buddha spoke about, and we talked about how they were uh, recited, you know, in the first council and then later written down. Um, we haven't talked about the Abhidharma, which is the third basket of teachings, okay, Vinaya and Sutra being the first two. And um, now, uh, presently, we only have two versions of the Abhidharma extant. The first is the Theravada version, and the second is the Savastavada version, which is uh, mostly intact in Chinese tradition. And the Abhidharmas, they were kind of like the first people who began to write about the Buddhist teachings, you know, because the Buddha spoke all this was accumulated. 
And then the Abhidharma texts, the Abhidharmas, what they started to do is to develop a text, do you call it taxonomy? Taxology? Mm-hmm. Taxonomy? Mm-hmm. Of like all the, <laughs> the Buddhist teachings. You know, because the Buddha spoke about the four of this and the five of that, and so they, they, they really wanted to organize all of this material in a systematic way. Um, so they sometimes organized it by the topics, you know, according to which topic, like the, you know, you have the five aggregates and the 12 sense spheres and the 18 elements and the, um, you know, Eightfold Noble Path. Sometimes you, they organized it in terms of lists of categories. For example, what is skillful action, what's unskillful action. Sometimes they organized it in terms of conditional relationships like cause and effect and how different things, elements of the path, related to each other. So what they were trying to do was, was take what the Buddhists said and like, systematize it in a way that brought out certain important points and then relate those different points to each other. What wound up happening because they did this is a whole lot of new questions started coming up, okay, because people started studying the Dharma, learning the Dharma in a slightly different perspective and a different view. So they began to have different questions like, what really is the nature of existence? And what really is the nature of the person? And so, therefore, these Abhidharma texts um, kind of sparked a lot of people thinking about things in a different way. Okay? And so, you know, when we talked about uh, before the split be- be- between the Staviras and the Mahasanghikas, you know, that a lot was over what is an arhat, you know, and who can attain arhatship. So a lot of those kind of questions were sparked because of the the writing of, of the Abhidharma. And similarly questions about, you know, what is a bodhisattva and who can become a bodhisattva and how does that path work? And so these kinds of things. Um, it's interesting, you know, in the traditional way of explaining the Abhidharma, um, it's explained as, as something that was added to the canon later, you know. Uh, that, that's the usual, the historical way of explaining it. Um, and so there's been these seven treatises of Abhidharma. What's very interesting is, you know, between the Theravada list of the seven and the Shravastavada list of the seven, there's only one that has in each of them that has any resemblance to the other. You know, the Abhidharma texts have different names, they're somewhat different, you know. And uh, the Theravadas wound up, you know, when I talk to my Theravada friends, some of them, you know, will will say, yes, it was written by Arhats later on, you know, the Abhidharma, and incorporated into the Tripitaka, the three baskets. But in, in traditionally Theravada countries, uh, what they attribute the Abhidharma to is, uh, you know, because there was this one rainy season retreat where the Buddha went up to the God realm of the 33 to teach his mother. So it's said that he taught his mother the Abhidharma. 
And every day after, at a certain point in the day, he would descend to the earth and meet Shariputra at some lake in the Himalayas where Shariputra was washing his alms bowl after having his meal. And the Buddha would then relay to Shariputra what he had taught to his mother about the Abhidharma, and then Shariputra would record it. And so that was the way they explained the Abhidharma being part, being called the Buddhist words. So, you know, it's interesting here that, that right away you have a story of being, well, it depends. If you look at it from a, a scholarly viewpoint, a story added to convince people that this is the word of the Buddha. But if you look at it from the viewpoint of the believers, it wasn't a story added. This was what really happened. Okay, so it's kind of interesting because uh, you can look at the story of Nargajuna with with the Prajnaparamita Sutras in the same way. From the point of view of a believer, this is history. From the point of view of a, of a historian, this is a story that was made up to give authenticity to the scriptures. Um, other other uh, people, you know, in the Shavastavada, they they simply say that it's the Buddha's word, even though it was written by later arhats, because the topics were all spoken of by the Buddha. Okay, So we can see very on that there's an incredible emphasis on authenticity and on only having what has been spoken by the Buddha. And actually when you start studying uh, the Prashnaparamita text at Amisamaya Alankara in the Tibetan tradition, there's a huge thing about, you know, proving how these scriptures are the word of the Buddha and how the Maya, and in many of the Mahayana commentaries, how the, the, you know, the commentaries are the word of the Buddha, so that, you know, all along there's this emphasis on uh, authenticity. Which, it, which, you know, I can certainly see this the reason for, and I think it's very important, but I also found it interesting that when we Westerners went to study those topics, we weren't so quite quite so concerned with the authenticity. We were more concerned with the contents, you know, because uh, we didn't start out with the faith of the Buddha and believe the Dharma because the Buddha spoke it. We were starting out with the Dharma, and if the Dharma made sense, then we were willing to follow those scriptures. Yeah, so it's just a, it's an interesting viewpoint, you know. And you see it in Christianity, you know, this whole thing of establishing certain chapters as, you know, authentic. And they didn't they discover some new chapter from the Bible? What was something about Judas? Yeah, didn't, the yeah, the gospel, you know. And so that created quite a stir, and you know, and uh, you know, what are you going to put in? And so you find, you know, some people start out with the faith and then believe a teaching because they have faith in the teaching. Other people start out with the teaching and develop faith because they think the teaching makes sense. Okay, so then, um, so that's the Abhidharmas. Then, you know, we have the development of the Mahayana. And... You know, there's a hole in my understanding somewhere because I thought the Prajnaparamita texts were the first ones to appear. Um, Because that's what I read somewhere. And they appeared like the first century BC. Okay? But Nargajuna was the one who mostly revealed them and he didn't live until 
the second century AD. So I uh, I gotta figure that out somehow. Okay. Um, what what you have? Uh, okay, let's go back to the the um, where are we? Okay, so the late first uh, century AD and the early second century AD, uh, you had the consolidation of a kingdom of the what's called the Kushan kingdom under the king called Kaniska the first, and this kingdom stretched from North India all the way into Central Asia, you know, and so through Pakistan, Afghanistan into, you know, the central, what's now the Central Asian Republics. And um, so that kingdom had control of the major trade routes, the Silk Road routes. And uh, the king, you know, Kaniska I, uh, gave, he had supplied much royal patronage to the Buddhist monasteries and Buddhist practitioners throughout that whole area. So there was a real flourishing that, that happened there. And then there was really the spread of the Dharma. I mean, the first spread of the Dharma happened under Ashoka when he sent his daughter and son to Sri Lanka. And then now you have this other spread that happened because you have this one unified kingdom. And so Buddhism, you know, began to go into, you know, northwest India, into Pakistan, into Afghanistan, into the Central Asian republics. And so, you know, in Afghanistan, then, you know, in later centuries, you had the Bamiyan Buddhas constructed, which I fortunately was able to see before the Taliban blew them up. Um, I saw them in 1973. So it was a while ago. Um, you know, but all these were areas, I mean, even into Persia to some extent, and, and, uh, you know, the whole area of Gandahar, which was in Afghanistan and, and northern Pakistan, um, you know, was all Buddhist, and that, that area also had some Greek influence. So you had the Gandahar Buddhists that look very kind of Greek. It's, it's really interesting, you know, how, the, how this all plays out. Um, so this is also the time when the Mahayana began to appear. So down in Sri Lanka, you have the Theravada, the, the Pali Canon getting written down in the first century BC. But actually, many scholars say they think it was written down before that, you know, because they only say the first century BC because that's what one of the uh, the Pali uh, or the the Sri Lankan chronicles say. But some historians say they think it must have been like the cent- second century BC. But um, up in the north, now you have the appearance of all these Mahayana scriptures, okay? So, um, it, and, and, and so that was a whole new take. I mean, there's a lot of topics that, that when you look at the Mahayana, well, you can see that, that the topics are very much rooted in the, in the Pali Canon. Okay, but then they're elaborated on, and they're made. They're they're really developed further in the Mahayana canon. So, for example, you know, in the Pali canon, it talks about the Buddha being a bodhisattva, you know, 
Uh, and But most of the people who practice become arhats. But the Buddha was a bodhisattva and he became a Buddha. And they don't really di- make much clear differentiation in the Pali Canon between the state of an arhat and the state of a Buddha. Well, in the Mahayana Canon, that became a big deal. And you, it, what you got is the differentiation of a whole bodhisattva vehicle, a whole bodhisattva path and the five ground, five stage, five paths and the ten stages and what you practice and abandon on each stage and uh, the, that whole outline and all of a sudden you had a whole new goal of full enlightenment rather than the enlightenment of a shravaka or of a solitary realizer who became arhat. So the Mahayana Sutra, there's this big differentiation that isn't made in the Pali Sutras between an Arhat and a Buddha. And you have the whole Bodhisattva path laid out. You have this whole emphasis on uh, on compassion, which is definitely present in, in the Pali Canon. And uh, I find a lot of people who study Tibetan Buddhism, you know, because we're always hearing, oh, you know, those Hinayana people are so selfish, they just want to become enlightened, uh, you know, for their own goal, and, you know, they forget about sentient beings. And I remember at one of these um, these big Buddhist gatherings where His Holiness was teaching, teaching in the evening, uh, this was in the 90s, and the, in the evening they had different Western Buddhist speakers speak speak each evening. And so one evening, uh, Sharon Salzberg led a meditation on metta, on loving kindness. And um, Alex Burson, you know, who's like the Buddhist scholar, Buddhist scholars, mm-hmm. said to me, wow, did you hear that? You know, I was so surprised, a whole meditation on loving kindness. And, you know, I, by that time, had had much more exposure to other traditions. And I said, yes, of course, that's found in the Theravada tradition. But it was, like, so surprising for some of the Tibetan people that, yeah, the Theravadas talk about metta and karuna, love and compassion. You know, because if you just hear it from the Mayan, if you go, oh, those people are so selfish. But, you know, that that's not it. There's very much these teachings, right, you know, right in the Pali Canon. Like I mentioned yesterday, you know, there's a list of the four fearlessnesses and the ten powers and uh, and this whole way of categorizing phenomena, the five aggregates, the the six sense bases, the, the twelve, you know, the twelve in, in, uh, sense spheres, the eighteen elements, all that straight out of the Pali Canon. Okay, so there, there's so much that's similar that you don't realize until you sit down and read it. You know, and then sometimes when you're just studying Tibetan stuff, you know, they talk about the Four Noble Truths, but not for a long time. And they talk about the Eightfold Path, but, you know, when they're talking about Bodhisattva actualizing it during the time they meditate on the path of meditation. But, you know, it's still the same Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. It's explained in a slightly different, more elaborate way in the Mahayana. You know, but it's still the same teachings, the 37 harmonies for enlightenment, you know, the necessity of renunciation and, you know, Shantideva's meditations on the loathsome aspect of the body. Those are straight out of the Pali Canon. Um, you know, the teachings on patience, so much of which we find again in Shantideva. You look in the Dharmapada, a lot of them are there and they're found in various, you know, Pali 
sutras. So, you know, if you really study, you, you don't see such an enormous gap as you're led to believe when you're trained in either one tradition or the other tradition. Okay. One thing I really appreciated a lot is I was always told, you know, don't be biased against traditions because they all stem from the Buddha. And if you criticize any Buddhist tradition, it's like criticizing the Buddha and, and the Dharma. So I always found that very helpful, and especially as I became more familiar with different traditions, and you can trace the roots back to the actual canon, then you really see that's true. Okay, so with the development of the Mahayana, okay, you had some new things. First of all, this whole thing about the Buddha becoming much more cosmic. Now this was rooted in the Mahasangika's view of the Buddha. Okay, Mahasangika, remember, he, they, they were already like just you know, 100, 200 years after the Buddhist Parinirvana. So they started that then. But here in the Mahayana, oh, and Buddha's more cosmic, has all these different abilities, can manifest in different forms. And you also have with the Mahayana the development of worship practices or, or different practices of different bodhisattvas. Okay, so you have the practice of Maitreya, who is going to be the future Buddha. And this whole thing of Maitreya appearing as the future Buddha is described in the Pali Canon, you know, as well as the Tibetan Canon. So they developed a whole practice of, of people who were de- very devoted to Maitreya and praying to him and meditating, you know, doing the Maitreya practice. And then you had a group of people who were really doing the Avalokiteshvara, the Kuan Yin or Chenrezig practice. And then you had other people who were really into the Medicine Buddha practice and other people who were really into the Amitabha Buddha practice. So you've got this development of, um, the historians call it cults, but I don't think that's a very good word. (laughs) Uh, It's more like, you know, group of people who practice, who have a lot of devotion to these various bodhisattvas. And so then you have the sutras of these various bodhisattvas appearing. And within all these sutras, you see that the bodhisattvas, before they became Buddhas, you know, made different vows and different aspirations um, of how they were going to practice and the things that they were going to do to specially benefit sentient beings. So you had this whole genre of teachings, you know, in the Mahayana, of these various bodhisattvas with their vows and their practices that are now being explained. And then different, you know, practices developing against, you know, with them. What I see is like when you get to Vajrayana, which is several centuries later, you know, Vajrayana doesn't start coming until like the 6th century AD, um, then you really get the development of these different Buddhist deities. Okay, but if you look at some of the deity practices in the Vajrayana, they correspond with these practices that you find in the Mahayana Sutras of the the particular Bodhisattvas. So in Vajrayana, you find an initiation into the practice of Maitreya and a whole sadhana on how to practice Maitreya, similar with, you know, Chenrezig. There's a whole initiation and it's, you know... It's not a sutra practice, it's a tantric practice. You know, same with medicine Buddha, same with, you know, Amitabha. 
And these all become deity practices in Tantra, and whereas they were sutra practices in the Mahayana tradition. Yeah, and so I find this. I know I'm jumping ahead and back. I'm going backwards and forwards in history here, but I find it rather interesting that, like in China,、uh, you know, you'll have the, you know, there's,、uh, I think, three different Amitabha sutras, okay, and and the practice, you know, you can see how the what the Tibetans practice in the Tantra, having to do with Amitabha, is. Based on the same scriptures that the Chinese practice, that they call a sutra practice, but the Chinese don't require an initiation. But for the Tibetans, it becomes a Vajrayana practice of Kriya Tantra. Okay, so I think it could be, you know, it, it's hard to say how, to, how it developed,、um, you know, historically if it went to China as a sutra practice and then in India and in Tibet, you know, became a, a It、probably in India, it became a tantric practice, or if maybe when it went to,、um, it could be that you know it went to to China early on, and then later in India before Buddhism went to Tibet, there it became a tantric practice. But it's it's you know there's so much similarity there when you see it. It's you know, so you just begin to see how how. You know, and, and I really stress this, you know, because sometimes people say, "Oh, three vehicles." You have the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana. And sometimes you go to these Buddhist conferences, and you know, "Oh, you're a Vajrayana practitioner, and this one's a Mahayana practitioner, that one's a Hinayana." You know, you can't say Hinayana because that's rude. Theravada practitioner. And, and people in the West treat these as if they're three separate, different kinds of practice. Okay, but. First of all, from the Tibetan viewpoint, Vajrayana is done on the basis of Mahayana. So you have to be a Mahayana practitioner before you can do tantric practice. And also from the Tibetan viewpoint, to be a Mahayana practitioner, you have to know do the basic practices that are found in the Theravada tradition. You know, even if the Tibetans call Hinayana, which is not equal to Theravada, but you know, still you have to do those practices to become a Mahayana practitioner, and you have to do a Mahayana practice to become a Vajrayana practitioner. So in the West, with the way they talk about it, like it's three different vehicles, it's it's really kind of nonsense. You know, and especially in some Western centers, you know, people think, oh well, we're Tibetan Buddhist centers, we just do Vajrayana. You know, we don't have to meditate on the Four Noble Truths, or we don't have to meditate on renunciation, or we don't have to. You know, we hear about bodhicitta, but we don't really meditate on it. We hear about emptiness, but we don't have to really meditate on it, because Vajrayana is the fast vehicle, and we just do that. But you know, if you have any knowledge of Vajrayana practices, it becomes real clear very quickly that you can't do them unless you have renunciation and bodhicitta and understanding of emptiness. Otherwise, it's just you know ringing bells and hitting drums and doing chanting and visualizing things and reciting stuff. But your mind doesn't change because the whole tantric sadhanas are based on the philosophy found in the Pali Canon and the Mahayana Canon. Okay, but you know this is not. 
I don't think it's really well understood in America. People tend to treat it as different traditions. And I'm even surprised, like, we were doing, uh, uh, we went into Airway Heights prison, you know, and we were talking with some of the other volunteers who go in there. And, you know, what what are they doing for, for the, these inmates who are basically new to Buddhism? They teach them the red Tara practice and they start the Manundra. And I'm going, whoa, you know, because if I had met Buddhism starting out with a Tara practice in Nundro, I would have said bye-bye. You know, because if I wanted to worship somebody and do prayers, I had enough in my religion of origin, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't need that kind of stuff. What really attracted me to Buddhism was the whole philosophy and the whole way of dealing with your mind. So I was so surprised, you know, that these people were starting out with these kinds of things because if you don't know anything about Buddhist philosophy, you know, what does saying the Vajrasattva Mantra do for you? Or what does doing prostrations do for you? Or why are you doing mandala offering? It just becomes so much ritual. And maybe that's why the Tibetan tradition is criticized by other traditions as just being so ritualistic. You know, I don't know. Just a thought there. You know, if, if, that's the, if that's the way that we make ourselves known, it's not by the philosophy and the way of transforming mind, but only by rituals and, and chanting and stuff, then of course other Buddhist traditions are going to say, you know, no substance. All you do is do pujas and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I when I go to teach in in Malaysia, the people tell me I'm the only person from the Tibetan tradition who comes there who gives teachings. Everybody else does tantric ceremonies. So they think that that's all Tibetan Buddhism is is tantric ceremonies. And of course. You know, they love these ceremonies because the, because then, you know, all you have to do is make an offering and the Lama does the ceremony. So you just have to sit in the room. You don't have to think about anything. You're getting blessed by the power of the Lama doing the ceremony. And the least you understand, the more blessing you get. You know, because here's this high lama sitting on a high throne with, you know, some big fancy hat, a lot of brocade, these big ritual instruments, chanting in a deep voice, you know, with all these other hats and thrones and different, you know, blessed water and pill and all this paraphernalia, chanting in Tibetan. You don't understand a word of it, but you feel like you're getting blessed. And so people think that's what Tibetan Buddhism is. So on one hand, the people who like the easy way out by having the Lama do it, they just love Tibetan Buddhism. You know, you just make an offering. You, you hire a Lama, basically. You hire a Lama to do a puja, and you get blessed and get some merit, and Lama has some money to take back to his monastery in India. It works out well for everybody. You know, but then people think that's all the Tibetans do. It's, it's really something, you know. And when you come and uh, try and, and teach this, some of these people at the Tibetan centers, they're kind of, they think, well, the teachings are just, like, boring, you know. We don't want to go to teachings. We want a ceremony. I mean, can't you do a house blessing or, you know, a powa ceremony or, a, you know, a this or a that or, you know. 
Yeah. Anyway, you know, you, you can. I got off on that tangent, didn't I? <laughs> but, you know, what I'm getting at is if you really study the historical development and you study the words there in the scriptures, then you realize, you know, that, that Tantra is not something separate from general Buddhism. You know, and that the basic Buddhist teachings are extremely important. You know? Even His Holiness, in, when He taught in Mountain Viewing, did the, the, the Perfection of Wisdom, he taught the Heart Sutra. And all these people showed up on the last day for the Medicine Buddha initiation. He really laid it on. Like, why are so many people coming for Medicine Buddha initiation? And you didn't come for teachings. It should be exactly the opposite, that you come for teachings and then do Tantra when you're more advanced practitioner. Yeah. But then, of course, the organizers did it this way because then more people will want to come for the Medicine Buddha thing and you make more revenue. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so we're back to... Um, so the perfection of, of uh, Wisdom Sutras, the first one that appeared was in 8,000 verses, and it was translated into Chinese in 179 A.D., really early on, okay? 